following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, without a doubt, this fallen world is full of unrighteousness and injustice. And oftentimes, it's hard for us to see how on earth righteousness and justice can be possibly executed at the moment. On a minor level, for example, there are countless, every day, there are countless phone scams. I remember recently, I received several phone texts that told me that I had a package that could not be delivered to our house because the address was wrong. And then the text asked me to click on a link to confirm my address. And then the next thing was a fake USPS page asked me to pay $3 for re-delivery. Knowing that it is nothing but a fraud, a scam, I try to report this phone number to a government agency online, but the process was pretty lengthy and complicated. I had to fill out a whole bunch of information, even my personal information, so eventually I gave up reporting that. And because I doubt it's worth my time, I also doubt it would make any difference to promote any righteousness. Instead, I sent a text to the scammer saying, Mr. Scammer, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, lest you perish, hoping that he might read the text and the Lord will use it to cause him to repent. Well, this is a small picture, um, close to our daily life, but small picture of how we might feel about our world full of unrighteous thoughts, words, and deeds. And also a small picture of how little expectation we might have for the execution of righteousness in the world and also how we ought to expect our righteous king to do righteousness even in the midst of all these unrighteous things in the world. Well, as Christians, we must not forget we do have a righteous king, the Lord Jesus who cares deeply about righteousness much more than anyone else, and who is forever living, forever reigning, even in the worst case of injustice. We must not forget either our righteous king, Jesus, is always building up his own kingdom of righteousness in all nations, even in places and peoples where righteousness seems unlikely. This is the theme we are going to learn tonight from Psalm 72. What I'd like to show you is this truth, that Jesus shall reign by perfect righteousness, with universal dominion, and for His everlasting glory. Let us look at three things as we walk through our passage tonight. First of all, the perfect righteousness. And second, the universal dominion. And thirdly, the everlasting glory of the king. So firstly, we learn from the passage, Jesus shall learn, Jesus shall reign by perfect righteousness. 
Let's notice the superscription here. Here we read a Psalm of Solomon. And it is not all that clear whether it means a psalm written by Solomon or a psalm about or for Solomon written by David as hinted in verse 20. Grammatically, it can be either way and good scholars, they, they differ in their opinions. But regardless of who the human author is, the message inspired by the Spirit here is clear enough. That is, Solomon, King Solomon is a type of the greater Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messianic king who shall come to save and rule over his people by his perfect righteousness. So let's consider four things about this perfect righteousness of this perfect righteous king. Righteousness only comes from God in the first place we learn. In verses 1 and 2, the author is pleading with God to give judgment and righteousness to the king. So the immediate context is an, an earnest request for God to give righteousness to King Solomon and also to his descendant who shall reign after him. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness means conformity to the requirements of God's will revealed in the moral law of God. Simply speaking, righteousness means being and doing what is right according to the righteous moral law of God. Righteousness also must imply wisdom because without wisdom, no one will know what is right and how to do right. However, by nature, after the fall, every human ruler is corrupt and foolish by default. Therefore, a human ruler can rule righteously only if God so powerfully restrain his evil and so mercifully bless his rule. Now, let's notice as well that this petition for the king's righteousness does not, and in fact cannot, find its final answer in King Solomon. Because as we shall see in a moment, this promised king here will receive everlasting praise and universal dominion, which never occurred in the life of King Solomon, nor in any of his descendants except one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Solomon. Therefore, this petition here in verses 1 and 2 for a righteous king is essentially a confident expectation for the coming of the messianic king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall reign by perfect righteousness. For hundreds of years, those faithful Jews who read and prayed this very psalm must have been praying for the coming of the promised messianic king who shall be endowed and furnished with perfect righteousness and exercise such righteousness in universal reign. Whenever you see any political move which leans toward more to God's law, for example, the most recent overturn of the Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court that would forbid abortion, you must never forget 
such a righteous act by human rulers is ultimately from the all-righteous king, the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, whenever you are concerned and even troubled by any policy or politician, whether by their fraud, their corruption, their lies, deceptions, you must not forget either. Only the righteous king, Jesus, can give righteousness. And thus, instead of grumbling against any of those corrupt men, you should place your trust in no other king but King Jesus Christ alone. A second thing we learn about the perfect righteousness of this king is that his righteousness moves him to defend the poor and needy with compassion. He will defend and help the poor and needy and the afflicted among his people. Look at verse 2 with me. In verse 2 we read, May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. And in verse 4, May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. And in verse 14, He will rescue their life from oppression and violence. Now, we have to ask a question. Who are those poor and needy and afflicted? Who are those that are being addressed here? Is he talking about everyone on the earth that is poor and needy and afflicted without exception? Well, no. Rather, notice verse 2 says, May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. So clearly, the poor and needy and the afflicted here are referring to those among God's covenant people. Only God's covenant people can claim the promise of God's gracious help and righteous vindication when they are oppressed and suffering. Here's the great hope for all the poor and needy and afflicted among God's people. This righteous king will not leave them alone. This righteous king will deal with them in his perfect righteousness and justice. He is not a respecter of men. There is no partiality in him. No one can ever bribe him. His eyes are not blinded by money, but are ever clear and sharp about what is right and what is wrong. He will give what is due to each one, regardless of who he is. This king does nothing but righteousness according to his righteous law. He cannot do otherwise because righteousness is what he is. Notice that as well. God helps the poor and needy out of his sincere compassion. As we see in verse 13, he will have compassion on the poor and needy. God is never indifferent or disinterested to his suffering people. Human rulers are often selfish. They often treat their people as a means to their own gain and ambition. Even when they really try to do something good to their people, it's often because of some kind of self-interest and not because they truly care about their people. Just think about Jesus' parable where the poor widow was pleading with the judge to vindicate her 
And the judge wouldn't do so initially until he could not bear with the widow who kept coming, coming to bother this judge. So you see again, the judge does something good to the widow just because he didn't want to be bothered. Selfish ambition. But this is not so for our righteous King Jesus. He promises to show compassion to his people who are poor and needy. He promises to save them because he cares about them. And of course, this does mean that they will always be free from their particular trials. But this does mean that God will always provide for them. God will sustain their faith. God will make much good to them even through their trials and punish the oppressors as we see in verse 4. Even if in God's most holy and wise providence, God so ordains for them to die through their trials and sufferings, we have the precious words here in verse 14, and their blood will be precious in His sight. Do you hear that? God will never forget nor take lightly the life and death of His beloved covenant people. God cherishes and treasures them, each and every one of them, Perhaps tonight, brothers and sisters, you are going through a period of neediness, whether material neediness, physical neediness, emotional or spiritual neediness. You feel you really lack something. You really need help. And you wonder if anyone cares about you and cares for you. Well, do not despair. Do not lose hope. Do not be disheartened either. Remember your king, Jesus, the most righteous one, who is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He, he does care about you with all compassion. He does care for you every single moment of your difficulties. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He cares for you with his righteous rule all the time. Perhaps tonight you are struggling because you are being wronged or you have been wronged by someone or something very badly and you desire some kind of justice and vindication for you but you just haven't had it and you are even tempted to bitterness. Let me encourage you to remember Jesus the righteous king alone can give you the ultimate justice. So leave all your sorrow Leave all the wrong you have suffered into his hands, his righteous hands, trusting that one day he will give you the final vindication which is due to you, if not this life, then the life that is to come for sure. Again, let me ask you, do you pray for the vindication of God's people in other parts of the world where Christians are severely and constantly and brutally and mercilessly persecuted. They can lose their homes, their families, their reputations simply because they name the name of Jesus Christ and people hate them, mock at them, beat them even to death, which does not happen here in this land by God's mercy. But do you realize that that 
can be a daily thing for so many saints in the Lord in other parts of the world? Do you pray for their vindication? Do you plead with the all-righteous king to vindicate them? Do you? A third thing we learn about the king's righteousness is that he shall bring spiritual peace and prosperity to his people who trust in him and obey his righteous rule. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3, we, we read, Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. So let's get the image here right. The image here is mountains and hills. Mountains and hills are far from peace. Why? Because these places can be dangerous and often short of food and drink. Who among you would go picnic in a mountain without bringing your own food? and expecting to find much food in a mountain. No. So, in a figurative way, the author is saying that God can bring much peace to his people, even though they are in need and in danger, just like being stuck in mountains and hills, so long as they trust in God who reigns righteously. The peace of God shall nourish and encourage God's people. Look at verse 6 with me to see how God would nourish and encourage His people by His righteousness. Verse 6 we read, May He come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. So the picture here is that when grass is cut, then with the scorching sun, the earth will soon be dry and barren unless rain fall down to moisture to fertilize the land again. So the idea here is that the peace of God from the righteous God is just like rain pouring down upon the dry land, making it fertile again. It's nourishing, it's refreshing, and it's prospering. God's people can and should expect to experience the peace of God even when their circumstances do not look promising at all. And the result is that as they put their trust in the righteous king, they shall flourish spiritually and continually. As we see in verse 7, in his days, may the righteous flourish in abundance of peace till the moon is no more. The moon is no more meaning continually, perpetually. Our sovereign king, Jesus, does all things right according to his perfect righteousness. He has never, and he can never, and he will never make even the slightest mistake ever. Even when everything that can go wrong seems to have gone wrong in the king's sovereign rule, he is always doing what is right in the midst of what is wrong. God is doing everything right, brothers and sisters, in order to comfort you and also to conform you into the righteous image of your Lord Jesus Christ. And that is your ultimate peace and prosperity. Your ultimate peace and prosperity do not come from money. Your ultimate peace and prosperity do not come from your profession but come from the righteous king who is doing righteousness in your life. Peace and righteousness are inseparable. 
you cannot enjoy any peace in your heart and life without trusting in your righteous king and doing his righteous rule by his grace. The opposite of righteousness is what? Is sin, death, and destruction. But thanks to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, your king, has suffered the unrighteous behaviors against him, his body and soul on your behalf so that he can grant his own righteousness to you. That is part of his kingdom, as we are told in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you tonight, do you trust that whatever God does is right? Even when it doesn't look so, but do you trust in his word that whatever he does is right because he is always right? Do you pursue righteousness in your daily sanctification? That is the key for you to enjoy the peace of God. So now we have seen the perfect righteousness of our King Jesus, which is demonstrated by his defending the poor and needy and afflicted, and also demonstrated by his, his bringing us peace. Now, this passage moves on to show us his universal dominion as the king. So secondly, we learn Jesus shall reign with universal dominion. Look at verse 8 with me. In verse 8, May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Notice the creation language here. Sea, rivers, and earth. We find the same language in Genesis 1:16 regarding God's purpose for his creation, especially creation of man. Here we read in Genesis 1:16, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what do we see from this parable, from this parallel between Psalm 72 and Genesis 1:26? Well, this promised righteous king will restore the mission of mankind that Adam has lost by his fall. So we know that in the beginning, God created man to represent God and rule over other creatures, as you learn from your shorter catechism. Man is commissioned to rule over other creatures as God's vicegerent. Man was created after God's own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. As we are told in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, so part of God's image in man is what? Righteousness. That means that man was endowed with the ability to do righteousness according to God's righteous law and also the ability to teach his descendants to do the same. So if Adam had obeyed God's righteous law and taught his children and children's children to do the same, that he and his descendants would have been enjoying everlasting life with God forever. However, Adam failed by violating a simple command of God 
not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, all mankind fell in him, fell with him and sinned in him and inherited his guilt and corruption of nature, passing down to every generation. All men, therefore, were born sinful and corrupt. Instead of ruling over other creatures, they are ruled by creatures as their idols. Instead of representing God as his vicegerent, they are rebelling against God as his vile enemies. This is nothing but unrighteousness. However, God, out of his sheer mercy and grace, promised to send a righteous king who shall fulfill all the righteousness that Adam has failed to fulfill as a substitute for his people. This promised king, Jesus Christ, shall suffer and die for the sins of his people. He shall rise again from the dead, and he shall call and subdue his own people to himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and he shall clothe them with his own perfect righteousness, and he shall also make them more and more righteous in obedience to the king and his law. That is what it means for the king, Jesus, to rule from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth, as we are told in verse 8. This is a promise that the gospel shall spread across the lands and oceans, extending beyond Israel, even to the all nations and all peoples, transforming the lives of the billions from the rule of sin and Satan into the rule of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why in the New Testament, the gospel is called the gospel of kingdom. The gospel is good news, not only because Jesus saved sinners from hell, which is true, but also more importantly, the gospel is good news because Jesus shall save his people into his own kingdom enabling them to submit to him and to serve him as their king, which is their chief end and chief good and their highest blessing. No better blessing for us than to serve the king as our king. Or brothers and sisters, you should pray earnestly for churches and missionaries in other nations. You should pray that they would preach the gospel unequivocally, uncompromisingly, that demands sinners to submit to Jesus' rule as their king. Here is why. There is always the temptation for Christians all over the world to dilute the message of the gospel in the name of contextualization. What is often compromised is Jesus' kingship and lordship. And Jesus' demand for sinners to turn away from their sin and turn to their king and God with submission. Why? It's because this message is very offensive. But as offensive as it has, but, but as offensive as it might seem, which is true, it is necessary. It is essential to the gospel. As we have seen this passage, Jesus shall reign as the king from sea to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth. Jesus' kingship is unmistakably essential 
for the complete message of the gospel. Jesus cannot be your savior without also be your king. Now, in verses 9 through 11, we see the king shall rule over all kinds of people, both the humble and the great. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. Verses 9 through 11, we read, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts, and that all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. So these nomads were likely uneducated, peasants living in the desert, and Sheba and Seba were, were likely more civilized kingdoms in Arabia and Ethiopia, as we see the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon in order to learn from his wisdom. And then Tarshish is likely the modern-day Spain to the far west of Israel, where Jonah, you remember, used to flee from God's call to preach the gospel to the Assyrians. So here we, we see um, a foretaste of this promise in Matthew 2, where the wise man from the east brought presence to Jesus and to worship him. Jesus was able to save them no matter how far and no matter how pagan they might have been, Jesus was able to save them as their mighty king. The power of King Jesus shall be such that he can subdue and save all kinds of people to obey and submit to his rule, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their education, regardless of their social class, regardless of their locality. No one is too lowly for Jesus to take interest in. No one is too uneducated for Jesus to reveal the gospel to. No one is too prosperous to need Jesus. And no one is too powerful for Jesus to subdue. Jesus can save the most unlikely sinners. So let me ask you, do you pray for the salvation of those who are lowly and humble? especially those who think are more lowly and humble than you are, those who are not as educated and cultured, whether they are your neighbors, your co-workers, or people in other nations, other countries, or do you somehow think, well, they are unattractive. I don't care for them to be gathered as part of the church. Do you think that way subtly? Do you pray for the salvation of those who are in high positions especially civil magistrates, especially those evil, wicked civil magistrates, do you pray for their salvation? Whether they are in the U.S. or other nations like China and Russia, do you desire for them to be saved? Or do you think um, they are too proud, so I don't want them to be saved? Do you think that way? What about those who reject the King Jesus? There are those who will reject the King Jesus. What about they? Then, look at the little phrase in verse 9 with me. In verse 9, 
we read, and his enemies lick the dust. So the language here, lick the dust, should remind you of the curse that God pronounced to the serpent after the fall of man in Genesis 3.14. Here we read in Genesis 3.14, God's pronouncement of the curse to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So here, the language, the eating of dust, is a picture of utter shame and dishonor of God's enemies, including Satan and all those who follow the device of Satan and reject King Jesus. Only worms eat dust, dirt. They are one of the lowest of lowly creatures. Humans are creatures of much higher class than worms. Humans are creatures made after God's own image with honor and glory and crown. Angels are creatures endowed with even more knowledge and power and glory than humans. But when humans and angels disobey God and listen to Satan, they became like worms, even worse than worms, because worms did nothing against God by humans and angels do, they become like worms, altogether lowly, ugly, defiled, and useless for God's kingdom. So you hear the language here, licking the dust, is showing how dishonoring we have been because of our fall. Their tongues are made to praise God, supposedly, and yet they speak lies about who God is. So their tongues only deserve nothing but dust. Charles Spurgeon even said this, dust is too good for them since they trampled on the blood of Christ. As rebellious as they are, they will still be subjected to the king's rule, but not voluntarily, but grudgingly, not joyfully, but dreadfully, not in honor, but in dishonor, licking the dust. But again, as I mentioned, there are certain countries in the world where Christians are constantly persecuted, mercilessly, such as Nigeria and North Korea and China. So let me ask you this. In light of the curse of licking the dust for God's enemies, do you pray against these enemies of Christ and His church? Do you pray that Jesus would destroy the kingdom of Satan? Do you trust in Jesus' power that is able to restrain, to rebuke, and even to crush all his enemies, to make them bow down and lick the dust? Do you believe that and pray according to such truth? No enemy can ever stop the king from expanding his own kingdom. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 we read, May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like cedars of Lebanon, and may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. Again, notice with me the agricultural language here. Grain, fruit, 
status of Lebanon, vegetation of the earth. This is a vivid picture of how the Church of Christ shall increase and grow all over the earth. The Church of Christ shall be prosperous and shall be lively, nourishing God's people by the means of grace in their number and in their holiness as well. Just as these crops nourish many people, Christ shall continue to gather and mature and perfect his people through the church by the power of the Spirit. So you should be very grateful, brothers and sisters, for how God has been increasing and will continue to increase his kingdom globally and universally. The fact that you as Americans and myself as Taiwanese, the fact that we can hear and believe in the gospel, even though we are thousands of miles away from the very first church in Jerusalem, is an evidence that your King Jesus is powerfully and infallibly fulfilling the promise here that he shall rule from sea to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth. He is faithful. He will do it. He so rules the world that whosoever has been given to him by God the Father shall be subdued and gathered to himself to call him as their king. You shall pray as well for the success of the Great Commission with confidence that Jesus shall subdue to himself all kinds of people in all nations we have no reason to be pessimistic, pessimistic. Rather, in light of Jesus' powerful kingship, we have every reason to be optimistic about the kingdom growth. So let me ask you, do you desire to see the growth of Jesus' church around the globe? Or are you too busy with yourself? Are you so busy about yourself that you just don't care about the church of Christ in other nations. Also, we have seen that Jesus' perfect righteousness demonstrated in his caring for the needy and poor. And we have also seen Jesus reign according to his universal dominion. Now, in the last part of the passage, we will see how Jesus shall reign for this very purpose, for his everlasting glory. Why would Jesus Christ rule over the whole earth and expand his kingdom to all nations? Why could he not just have confined his kingdom in Jerusalem? Why not? Well, it's ultimately for his own glory. Look at verses 17 through 19 with me. 17 through 19 we read, His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And man shall be blessed in him. All nations shall Call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So here we see several causes for God to be praised by his people. In verse 17, we see that all men shall be blessed in him. And this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, as we see in Genesis 22, in, all, in your seed, 
all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then later, as we are told in Galatians 3, the blessing of Abraham shall come to Gentiles who are in Christ, the seed of Abraham. God is worthy of our praise because of his faithfulness, his faithful covenant promise for his people, even to those Gentiles who would have been hopeless apart from God's grace. And then in verse 18, we are told that God is worthy of our praise. Why? Because he's the Lord God, meaning he's eternal and unchangeable. I am who I am, God. And he's the God of Israel, meaning that he's the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, ever faithful to his people, even though they are often unfaithful and unworthy. Again, in verse 18, we see why God is to be praised. God is worthy of our praise because of his wondrous works, including his works of creation and providence, but especially his redeeming work by sending his son to be the God-man king to suffer for their sins, to slaughter the devil, and to subdue his people to himself. The ultimate purpose for Jesus' righteous rule, the ultimate purpose for Jesus' universal dominion is so that God may be worshipped by his people in all nations, at all times, in all places, for all that he is and all that he does for all his people, for all their good. Jesus commands the church to send out ordained men to make disciples of all nations for this very purpose, so that God may be blessed and adored globally and perpetually. Do you desire to worship God with adoration and praise? Are you zealous about God's great name to be honored and exalted high? Or are you so consumed with your own honor, reputation, and business? Never forget what mercy and compassion and what wisdom and power that your King Jesus has shown to you by saving you from your sin and misery. Never forget that. You have every reason to adore Jesus all the days of your life, especially when you are worshiping him. Do you desire for other people in other nations to worship your God? Do you want your God to also be their God? Are you praying for the success of the mission work with a desire that God may be worshiped in every nation, tribe, and tongue? Is that your desire? Or do you somehow think, well, I'm busy enough here and now. I don't care about those other people out there far away from me. Is that the way you think and feel? You should repent. You should desire what the Lord desires. That the zeal of the Lord also be your zeal. The zeal for his name to be adored and honored in all nations. What is the most unrighteous event in human history? It is Jesus' crucifixion. The Holy Son of God being killed by Gentiles and Jews created by God 
for the purpose of worshiping the Son of God. And yet, even in the midst of such heinous unrighteousness, your King Jesus was still executing his most holy and righteous plan in order to save both Jews and Gentiles into his righteous kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus still ran by his perfect righteousness with universal dominion and for his everlasting glory. Therefore, let us trust in his righteous rule even when evil seems to be rampant. Let us submit to his righteous rule. Let us not put our confidence in any prince but in our king. Let us desire and pray for the global expansion of his kingdom. Let us plead earnestly for the Lord of harvest to destroy Satan's kingdom and to bring men and women, boys and girls to his kingdom. Are you submitting to Jesus' kingly authority and thus you are under his blessing now? If that's you, that's great. No more blessing than that. Or are you still rejecting his kingship and thus you are under his curse and you are leaking the dust? Is that you? Let's pray together. Our Lord and King Jesus Christ, how we adore you and praise you. For you are the eternal Son of God, the same in substance with God the Father, equal in power and glory with him. And yet, you came to this world, you became a baby, but you came here to be king, but you became a king, first of all, by your sacrifice, your humiliation, your death for our sins. We thank you for subduing us to yourself. We ask, O oh Lord, that you enable us to put our trust in you for all that you are doing in your perfect righteousness. May your, may your name and your honor be spread to all nations. May you be worshipped by all nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.